Welcome to the podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky, the podcast where I tell you about wonky animal facts. And if we're lucky, we might hear from Coco today. Coco thinks that it's getting to be about bedtime, which means it's getting to be dry food time, and she might have some meows to say about it. So what do you think, Coco? Hey, Coco, come here. We'll see if the purse got picked up. So anyway, I know we have some new listeners to the podcast. So hi, hello, welcome. Um, I I don't always mention it in the outro anymore um, because I forget. But to let you know and remind the listeners that have been here for a bit, if you have any suggestions of fun facts you would like me to cover or different animal situations, whatever, feel free to let me know. You can message me on one of our social medias, we're on Facebook and Instagram, or you can email me at quirkycreepyfreakypod at gmail.com, and I will take a look and work it into the schedule. And honestly, email might be best, so I don't forget about it. Um, But any of those ways is fine. We do also have a Patreon as well, I'll give the link for that in the description today. Um, I haven't been pushing that quite so much in a while because I was kind of driving myself a little crazy with not doing anything with it. Um, And, you know, I still haven't done anything there in a hot minute. But if you do enjoy the podcast, uh, feel free to go there and subscribe. Financial support is always fun. I don't currently have any Patreon-exclusive content, but I am thinking as my free time opens up soon, I may start trying to get some bonus episodes up there for people And it's going to be one of those things. We're just going to play it out, see how it goes. Um, I would like to do more there for any Patreon subscribers when they show up. But for now, that will be a future thing. Um, So yeah. And now for this episode. So originally, I was going to talk about the camouflage abilities of goldenrod spiders. But then the ocean decided it had to be dramatic and pop into the news with some pretty startling headlines. So a few weeks ago it was published, or I think both of these were actually still just like, was it last week? No, we're two weeks ago. Yeah, about two weeks ago. Uh, So yeah, about two weeks ago there was a paper published where researchers have projected the collapse of the Gulf Stream section of the global conveyor belt, which is the series of currents that, like the very large currents that connect all of the oceans of the world together. Um, so the collapse of that happening sometime in the next 90 years. So very likely within our lifetimes with things that, if things don't change. And also a spike in ocean temperatures in Florida that has caused a mass coral bleaching event, potentially Um, In some areas as well, a mass mortality event um, in reefs around the Keys. So the hottest areas have set records and have reached the triple digits with Manatee Bay, an area near Everglades National Park, reaching all the way up to 101 degrees Fahrenheit. And that would really even be hot, even for hot tub standards. Uh, So as a result, a whole bunch of corals have bleached, other corals have also died, and coral researchers and nonprofit organizations are working, are really rushing to try to move corals to a temperature controlled area, so kind of indoors, temperature controlled water, so they can hopefully be returned when conditions hopefully improve. 
Uh, so I figured this would be a good time to talk about coral bleaching and how it happens and why it happens and all of that good stuff. So in what's currently already shaping up to be a super uplifting episode, let's dive into the coral. So of course, first we'll talk about what coral is. Uh, I think a lot of people know about coral. They are a pretty well-known uh, thing. So I'm sure most people have a mental image of what coral are. So we're going to do a bit of a review here just in case. And I also want to say at the beginning that, that we know there's a lot that we know and a lot that we don't know with coral and coral reefs and bleaching and all of it. And it's one of those things that we could very well, like there could very well just be like a coral podcast where we talk about everything about corals from like what they are, deep sea corals, reef corals, how reefs are built, all of the things that reefs like sustain. So, uh, and bleaching also is reasonably complicated. And I'm going to do my best. We're going to like summarize a lot of things in like 15 to 20 minutes. So there's going to be some things that we are likely going to miss. Um, because corals are complicated. So we're gonna have a bit of a review here, go over what corals are and bleaching and all that good stuff. Um, but again, if you know some particular about coral bleaching, you're like, oh, why didn't you cover like blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's because we're here for 20 minutes. So anyways, uh, with corals, we are once again gonna be in phylum Nidaria. And actually, corals are also in class Anthozoa. So we're gonna be in the same group as the sea anemones from last week. And also, corals actually do kind of look like super tiny anemones. They have the same general polyp body plan with the stockish body and a set of tentacles surrounding the mouth. They're just much smaller. So when you look at coral, the part that you're likely going to really see, especially with hard corals, is going to be their hard, like, rocky exoskeleton. And the corals are a much smaller, like, wee little animal that live within there. So, at least as of a couple years ago, as of about 2020, there have been a little over uh, 2,100 coral species identified. And then, since we're already not talking about super uplifting things with corals, as what's a not super fun fact, about 230 of those species are known to be endangered. And that could be higher. I'm sure there are plenty of coral species that we have yet to discover, and that data is a couple years old now. I would like to think it has improved, but probably not. With the corals, there are two, we tend to divide them into two much larger groups. We have soft corals and hard corals. So the soft corals are often uh, found in deeper seas. They don't usually live in reefs, but you can have some like soft corals living there, but the soft corals tend to be deeper sea. And then the hard corals, uh, these ones typically are your shallower water reefs and are typically the ones that are your reef building corals. So it's going to be these hard corals that are going to be the ones we're mostly talking about today. So we're not really even going to touch on the soft corals very much. So hard corals are that way because each little polyp within the larger colony secretes calcium carbonate. And this forms that hard, rocky exoskeleton that we see when we think of corals. Each individual coral is actually a colony of polyps. So the polyps multiply through asexual reproduction, I think usually budding, 
which means that each individual polyp within a colony are all clones of each other, all identical. And then, because of the calcium carbonate and the natural transparency of coral polyps, uh, corals themselves are white, but they get their color through a symbiotic relationship with a small planktonic algae, or what's typically a small planktonic algae. So um, it's because of this algae that we see all of the different like yellows and oranges and pinks and reds that we think of when we see corals. So these planktonic algae that are associated with the corals are referred to broadly as zooxanthellae. So that's Z-O-O-X-A-N-T-H-E-L-L-A-E if you need your peculiar word for the day. Uh, Zooxanthellae are single-celled algae that belong to a group called the dinoflagellates. Other dinoflagellates um, are common within the photosynthetic plankton that we refer to as phytoplankton. And honestly, they're some of my favorite phytoplankton to see when I'm looking at marine water samples because they look quite snazzy. For our zooxanthellae, it's mostly one genus that forms the relationship with corals, so it's not really spread out throughout the entire group. It's really just like one little subset. These zooxanthellae live within the coral's tissues, and they actually become incorporated within the animal cells themselves. Corals that have zooxanthellae may still eat some plankton floating by, but for the most part, they rely pretty heavily on the sugars produced by photosynthesis from the zooxanthellae as like their primary energy source. So in order for these corals to really be healthy, get the energy and the nutrients that they need to survive, they rely pretty heavily on the zooxanthellae within their tissues. So then for the bleaching. Uh, if zooxanthellae give corals their variety of colors, then what happens during bleaching events? What even are bleaching events? So we'll answer the second question first because it also ends up kind of answering the first question as well. So bleaching is what happens when coral lose their color due to either a partial or complete loss of their zooxanthellae. With a partial loss, there are a couple options here. They might look a little lighter in color. So for example, there are some seasonal changes in zooxanthellae presence in the corals so kind of at the end of season, warmness at the end of the summer, they tend to have uh, less algae in their systems anyway. Uh, so they might just be a little bit lighter in color or they might get splotchy and that can happen uh, more particularly in disease situations, I think. So depending on, also depending on the situation, a partial loss can eventually transition to a complete loss and that would be where they lose at least 70 to 90% of their zooxanthellae. When a, with a complete loss of phytoplankton, this is, as I might mention later, uh, technically recoverable. But if we do have a complete loss of zooxanthellae, this would be when we would look at it and be like, oh dear goodness, that is uh, definitely bleached. And um, if they don't recover within a couple of weeks, you will likely be looking then at a dead coral. Um, because they do rely on the zooxanthellae for energy, obviously if they don't have the energy source, um, it's really just a matter of time. Uh, so when we have bleaching events, this is when we have some environmental factor that has triggered the entire reef to bleach. So these mass bleaching events like that don't always lead to mass death, 
So over time, and if the stressor goes away, as I said, then the coral can recover and get their little algae friends back and then be nursed back to health. However, if the stressor persists, also as I said, then a match bleaching event can indeed lead to a mass death event. There are a variety of environmental stressors that can trigger bleaching. A big one is temperature change. Uh, both large increases in temperature, so getting hotter, and large decreases in temperature. They also don't like it when it gets too cold. Uh, salinity changes can cause bleaching, um, changes in sunlight. So if you suddenly have a like huge increase in uh, solar radiation, increased sediments in the water, so that can make the water too dark. Um, and there are a variety of coral diseases as well, and in recent years, many reefs around the world, it's been a combination of increasing water temperature and spreading coral diseases that have caused bleaching and death events. Uh, what's extra unfortunate is that some of these coral diseases are more active in warmer water. They prefer the toastiness. So as the waters get warmer, we also get more coral diseases. In some areas as well, uh, if we have some larger seaweeds that will that can grow on the coral, uh, these can also cause bleaching. So what has happened? Uh, so we're talking, or part of what made us, you know, talk about coral bleaching today was the mass bleaching and death event in Florida. So what happened there? Um, what triggered that? And what's going on? So what happened with the bleaching event in Florida is that the area really has just been experiencing a heat wave for quite some time. South Florida is, or at least was, uh, here where um, it's August 6th. Um, at the time of recording, I haven't checked on the heat wave status, but uh, for a while, South Florida has been in a heat wave that has led to excessive heat warnings to be declared for 22 days, and that beat the previous record of, I think what I saw was nearly two weeks. For whatever reason, I did not put that one in my notes, but I'm pretty sure it was something like 13 days. Uh, so this heat wave on land has, of course, led to higher seawater temperatures, because that's how it kind of works. Um, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, Manatee Bay reached a record of 101 degrees, but many other areas were also in the mid to high 90s. NOAA has a coastal water temperature map. And it says that they're updated about every 30 minutes or so. And when I checked yesterday evening, some areas in South Florida and around the Keys were still logging temperatures in the mid-90s. So it's really still pretty hot. And this is in mid-July. Typically, the waters around South Florida and the Caribbean and just like Gulf of Mexico, like all of that general area, doesn't reach their warmest until August or September. So if you think about when peak hurricane season happens in the Atlantic, that's typically kind of in that September, early October range. And that's why that is. It typically takes until then for the water to just reach its warmest. So if this is happening now, um, it'll be interesting to see what the rest of the summer looks like. Uh, so these record-breaking temperatures have triggered a mass coral bleaching event, which of course, again, is why we're here. One reef in particular, Sombrero Reef, has been of particular attention. Sombrero Reef was classified as a sanctuary preservation area, which protects any areas that are considered biologically important and support critical marine species and habitats. Reefs do all of those things. 
They provide pretty critical habitat for uh, really anything that lives in the tropics. It's essentially like the rainforest of the ocean. So when a reef system dies, then kind of everything living there leaves and or also dies. So in addition to sombrero reef um, bleaching, there are also some nurseries in the area and surround, or in addition to sombrero reef, there are also some nurseries in the area and the surrounding keys that people are using to help grow corals. With this bleaching event, almost all of the corals being grown in the nurseries have died, so those were just a total loss. And some reports say that Sombrero Reef has also experienced a 100% mortality, um, but there are some researchers on a the coral list serve that I'm in has said that so far, at least as of July 26th, it's really just, like really in quotes, like just, um, nearly uh, 100% bleaching. Of course, though, if conditions don't improve, 100% bleached can fairly quickly become nearly 100% dead. Now, uh, what's kind of good is that in the upper keys where water has generally been cooler, I mean, we're still talking upper 80s, mid 90s, the bleaching hasn't been quite as detrimental. Um, but if you want to see what it looks like when a reef bleaches like this, there are uh, some of the scientists are also making a photo gallery in Flickr with photos of the reefs. I apparently closed that tab, so I'll have to find it again, and I'm going to post that in description for the episode. And honestly, even if you don't really want to see what it looks like, like you should still look. This is getting to be a reality for a lot of reefs, and even what we consider these days to be like a healthier reef aren't really what they used to be. Uh, some of the older scientists in the coral listserv have been talking about, and like in recent months, have been talking about putting together a photo gallery of that they of photos they have of what reefs used to look like, because most researchers, like younger researchers especially, kind of around my age, have never really had the opportunity to see a healthy reef. Um, so we just have a much different baseline of like what they should look like. The baseline that we have is going to be very different from the baseline that was there like even 30 years ago. So bleaching nowadays is often associated with climate change related events. So a really good example of that would be the heat wave in Florida triggering that. But there historically have been natural patterns. In the past, most spikes in water temperature were preceded by a fairly tolerable increase in water. So, or in water temperature, so either a mini spike in temperature before the big spike or just a gradual increase working its way there. And this allows the corals to acclimate so they can get used to the higher temperature. And much like you, kind of like, you know, if the hot tub is really too hot, like put your toes in first and you're like, okay, we're good there. Then you like put the rest of yourself in. It's kind of like that. So this allows the corals to get used to the higher temperatures. They can activate those stress proteins acclimate a little bit, and this helped to minimize the amount of mortality and bleaching by about half. Uh, what is a bummer, though, is that in 2016, researchers predicted that these sort of, like, acclimatization, pre-stress events may just generally disappear altogether. So, and events like the one that we're currently experiencing could be a good window into what that's going to look like. 
The current extreme temperature spike, the current extreme temperature spikes in Florida, really, even if it did have some sort of pre-event, pre-stress event to help acclimate the coral, the water is really just hot enough that, honestly, it probably wouldn't have mattered. So, of course, uh, this potential sudden decline in reefs is very worrying for a variety of reasons. One, of course, is just along with the extensive wildfires this summer, it gives a, a bit of a window into what the future is going to look like. And with the coral reefs, they are extremely biodiverse habitats. They really are the rainforests of the ocean, so to speak. They provide food, shelter, nurseries for a wide variety of fish, marine mammals, invertebrates, sea turtles, and heck, if you're in the Galapagos, you got marine iguanas. In the um, in areas in the Pacific Ocean, you also have sea snakes, like just all sorts of things. And for people, reefs can be a really important source of food, nurseries for other things that we eat. And for people that live in areas around the reefs, so thinking of places like Florida, uh, they help to decrease energy related to like tropical storms like hurricanes. So it can take the energy out of these storms, make them a little bit weaker, absorb some of that storm surge. And as reefs degrade, that's going to increase the damage that we see, which is no good. Many areas also rely quite heavily on reefs as a source of ecotourism. So without reefs, these people, and in some areas, entire communities, lose a major source of income. Um, so naturally, as water temperatures rise, uh, protecting the reefs along with other marine habitats is a major concern. So what can we do about it? As I'm pretty sure I've said in previous episodes by now, looking at the effects of a changing climate like this is extremely daunting and it's scary and it can feel a little bit hopeless because, you know, it's, it's a big problem. Uh, so general consensus as a thing to kind of help you feel a little bit better General consensus with climate change and sustainability scientists, though, is that hope is not lost and there are things that we can still do to at least avoid the extremes of climate change. The situation in general is just pretty dire and we need to start seeing change. And of course, we are currently at a point where we're not going to avoid climate change altogether, like it's kind of here, but we can help to avoid the worst of it. So what can you do about it? Literally, the easiest thing and one of the best things you can do is vote about it and be at least a little bit active in government in some way, shape, or form. And I'm not saying, like, you have to go, like, run for, like, your state senate or anything like that. Just, like, occasionally poke some of your local representatives and be like, hey, do we have, like, any sort of plans about climate things? And then if they say no, then you can be like, hey, maybe we should do that. Um, but other than that, like, Really, one of the easiest things and one of the best things you can do is just, like, vote about it. And not even just in the major presidential elections, but also, like, your Congress people, your state representatives, and your local government. It's really going to be your local and state government people that are going to be the ones helping to make moves to mitigate some of the effects of climate change in your area and are going to be making the local changes that you are going to feel more. And as a... I don't know if it's a fun example, but here in Vermont, uh, a few weeks ago, we experienced a major rain event that caused major that caused major flooding in a lot of areas. Some places saw seven inches of rain in like a day. 
Um, and people were comparing it to flooding from Hurricane Irene. But I did also talk to plenty of people that said that there were areas near them that flooded in like during Hurricane Irene in 2011. But then due to just um, infrastructure changes that uh, were t- un- that happened since then, they didn't flood now. Look at that. Fixing things. So change can happen, but we do need it to happen quick. And we also kind of need people in power that care about the environment to help make that happen. And of course, particularly with this coral incident for other things, like you can also donate to organizations helping to protect the coral. The Coral Restoration Foundation looks like they've been pretty active in the response, along with several universities in the area. And if you do live in some of these areas, uh, I'm sure they will be needing volunteers. So that is a good thing you can do. And this is one of those episodes where I'm honestly honestly not entirely sure how to conclude it. I guess that call to action would have been a good one. Um, When talking about a bummer topic, I usually try to leave things on a bit more of an uplifting or hopeful note. Um, But this one's a tricky one. So for this episode, we're just gonna like root for the scientists and researchers and volunteers working their butts off to save the coral and we're going to hope for some cooler waters ahead. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode interesting, I'm not going to say enjoyed because, again, this one's kind of a bummer. Um, But if you found this episode interesting and know anyone in your life that needs to hear about corals, which we all know is everybody, share the podcast with your friends. They can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Podbean, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, Be sure to subscribe so you can be notified of future episodes and leave us a review. Those are all great, great ways to support this podcast and help new people find us. If you are on Facebook or Instagram, be sure to give us a follow at Quirky, Creepy, and Freaky on Facebook and Quirky, Creepy, Freaky Pod on Instagram to get all the pictures and updates on the podcast. Thanks to my sister, Kaylee Streit, for creating the theme music. And thank you all for listening. We will see you next time.